open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at chapters 4 and 5 today. If you have a welcome table Bible, it starts on page 3, I believe. Um, probably somewhere around there in your own Bible as well. Just a quick recap of, of where we've been so far. I know we paused last week and, and um, you know, after the passing of, of Rebecca uh, Oltman and, and just really wanted to share uh, my heart with you from Second uh, Corinthians 4 and 5. And so now we're, we're back into this series in Genesis and um, just want to give a quick recap, okay? Genesis 1 and 2 give this account of creation and they establish God's perfect relationship with mankind, right? Uh, Genesis 3 then tells us the account of the fall and um, where Adam and Eve rebelled and, and sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, and they broke that perfect relationship with him, and they introduced this curse of sin and then death into the picture. But then in the midst of this curse, in Genesis 3, we get this promise of hope, right? Genesis 3.15, if, if you were here that week, uh, unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties with the audio, but if you were here that week, we... we um, I told you to mark that verse down in your Bible. Highlight it, circle it, underline it, do whatever you need to because that verse sets the trajectory for the rest of the story that Scripture tells. Here's what it says, Genesis 3.15. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This is God talking to the serpent here. He will strike your head, the seed of the woman will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. And with those words, God promised to one day bring ultimate condemnation and ultimate defeat to the serpent and ultimate uh, 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 redemption and, and victory to his own people, right? A serpent crusher is coming. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. It's the first gospel, right? And until he came to deliver the final blow, this, this serpent crusher, there would be ongoing hostility between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And actually, as we know, Jesus is the serpent crusher. There's still ongoing hostility. We still have to do battle, right? But we do it from victory, not for victory. There's a difference. We'll talk about that in a little bit. This hostility, though, from Genesis that, that God promises is not ultimately be, between humans and snakes, right? It's, it's this hostility between humans who love and trust God and humans who hate God and, and love themselves. Even though the second group descends physically from Adam and Eve, from the woman, they descend spiritually from the serpent. Now, Genesis 4 and 5 set up these two spiritual genealogies by telling us about two physical genealogies. This distinction between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent then will be woven throughout the rest of the grand redemptive story that Scripture tells. It's one we need to understand because it'll ultimately cause us each to consider our own spiritual lineage and see why that's far more important than knowing our earthly bloodline. So I want to pray again and ask the Lord to open our minds and our hearts uh, to see these genealogies and find Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that every word is yours here in Scripture. We pray that as we go through this, that we would see the importance of these genealogies, that we would see how they relate to our own lives today, and that your Spirit would lead us to Jesus Christ, the one in whom we find new life, in whom we're made new creations, in whom we're adopted into a new family. 
We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm the sixth generation on my dad's side of the family to have the middle name Warren. Six generations. Albert, Avon, Albert, David, Eric. Five generations. Huh? They're the six. Okay. Dang it. So I'm not great at math, but um, this tradition has been passed on to the firstborn son for five generations. Uh, for me, I'm the fifth generation. Now, um, you just heard my wife say, we have three sons, okay? And so I broke the tradition, and now they all have the same middle name that I do and the four Johnson men before me. Um, some things are fun to pass down from generation to generation, Right? Some things are fun to pass on from generation to generation, but then there are other things that that get passed on whether we want them to or not, and those things are not as fun. You can probably think of something like that in your mind from your own family, perhaps. Today we'll see these two family lines emerge from Adam and Eve, and one will pass on the corruption of, of sin and the curse of death, and the other will pass on the hope of life and the freedom from the curse. One genealogy leads us to the serpent and the other leads to the serpent crusher. Both are important for us to know because through them we learn what has been passed on to us. And so here's sort of our main thought for today. Because our inheritance is literally a matter of life and death. It's vital for us to understand our spiritual lineage. Because our inheritance especially our spiritual inheritance. It's literally a matter of life and death. It's vital for us to understand our spiritual lineage. So let's jump in and look at this first line. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. The man, Adam, was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have made a child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of the flocks, of flocks but Cain Worked the ground. Now, at first glance, Eve's words seem to offer hope to the reader here, right? It seems like Cain may be this, this promised offspring of the woman that God mentioned back in Genesis 3.15. Even though Adam and Eve will experience death, God is faithful to keep his promise to say, hey, you're going to have children, right? Generations will come from you. Adam named her Eve because she is the, the, the mother of life, right? Her name means life. And so there, there, there's hope of this promise here. Verse 2 makes it clear that Cain is the, is the main person in this story right now, okay? Did you notice how he refers to Abel? He calls him Cain's brother, right? If it was about Abel, he would have referred to Abel on his own. And so it, Cain is the focus right here. But then these next five verses begin to raise this question about whether Cain is the offspring who will crush the serpent or whether Cain is the offspring of the serpent. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering. Some of the firstborn of, of his flock and their fat portions, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. These are the first recorded offerings of worship to God in the Bible, right here. Cain's and Abel's, okay? 
And it can be tempting for us to assume that God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's because Abel made this blood sacrifice to God and Cain didn't. But we know from later in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that both of these kinds of offerings are acceptable to the Lord. They're acceptable worship practices in the tabernacle. What becomes clear in the text here is that it's not the type of offering itself that pleases God. It's the heart behind the offering that God is most concerned with. Now, God is omniscient, right? He knows everything. There's nothing he needs to learn, and so he already knows Cain's heart behind the offering before Cain reveals it himself. That's why he rejected Cain's offering. We begin to see Cain's heart in Cain's response to the Lord's rejection. And how did he respond? It says he was furious and despondent. He was filled with rage. He was filled with despair. But what Cain failed to see is that God's rejection of Cain's offering wasn't an act of condemnation. It was this act of grace that led him to a warning. Cain, watch out, right? In in verses 6 and 7. In essence, the Lord's saying, Cain, if your heart is right, listen, you don't have anything to worry about. You have nothing to fear. But be careful. Because sin plays dirty. It's crouching at your door. It's lying in wait for you. It's not just going to come knock. It's going to wait for you to come out and ambush you. Sin wants to become your master, but Cain, you need to master sin. In other words, God's saying, Cain, guard your heart. Now, would Cain listen to the Lord? Would he trust the Lord and love and obey him, or would he let sin rule his heart Verse 8 leaves no doubt in our minds as to what the answer is. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. First murder in the Bible. The sin that was crouching at Cain's door, lying in, in wait to ambush him, has now captured him. Cain ambushed and murdered his own brother Abel in cold blood and resentment. Cain ignored God's warning, and the next scene is reminiscent then of, this, of, of the Lord's conversation with Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned. This is what God says to Cain, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? And then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that, is, that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Just like God did with Adam and Eve, God offered Cain the chance to confess his wrongdoings by asking him questions. God knows the answers, right? But he wants to give Cain this opportunity to confess the truth about what happened to Abel. And so God, uh, 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 he he says, where's your brother? Just like he said to Adam, where are you? And then he says, what have you done? Just like he says to Eve, what have you done? And just like his parents did, Cain shirked his responsibility, excuse me, instead of confessing his sin. But again, God is omniscient. He knows everything. 
There's nothing he needs to learn. Nothing is hidden from him, including the truth about what happened to Abel. The ground confessed the truth to him. So God exposed Cain's sin, and he brought judgment upon him for it. When Adam sinned, God cursed the ground. This is important. When Cain sinned, God cursed Cain, just as he did the serpent. Adam would eat from the ground by means of painful labor. Cain would never again get food from the ground, no matter how hard he worked for it. He was doomed to wander restlessly on the earth. Now, we don't get to see Adam's response to God's punishment in Genesis 3, but we do get to see Cain's response here in chapter 4, verse 13. Take a look. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you're banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord replied to him, in, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. And then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, it's not entirely clear from the text here whether, Cain's, whether or not Cain's words are reflective of true repentance. But it seems like as we read this, he's more upset about the consequences uh, that he receives than, than about murdering his own brother, right? Now, whether it's true repentance or not, here, God is still merciful, and he extends mercy toward Cain, and he placed this mark on him so nobody would kill him when they saw him. The text doesn't tell us what the mark was, what it looked like, or even actually if it was visible to people. But whatever it was, it signified that God would provide physical protection over Cain's life. That's grace. That's mercy. Just like Adam and Eve went out from the garden, Cain went out from the Lord's presence, and it says that he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The farther east you go from Eden, the worse things get. That'll be a theme that we see ongoing. Nod in Hebrew means wandering. And so it's not necessarily a city that he's going to. It may be a land sort of like the wilderness that the Israelites, to whom Moses is is sharing this with, where they wandered. But Nod, Nod means wandering in Hebrew, and it's reflective of Cain's punishment to become a restless wanderer. And so we're left with little doubt at this point about Cain's spiritual lineage, right? Even though he's a physical descendant of Eve, he is not the promised seed of the woman who would become the serpent crusher. He's a seed of the serpent. This is Cain's lineage. In John chapter 8, Jesus, who by the way is the serpent crusher, says that Satan was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And, and here, what have we seen Cain do? We've seen him murder and we've seen him lie. Right? We've seen him lie about it to God. The apostle John confirms Cain's spiritual lineage in one of his letters. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one, he's the seed of the serpent, that's what he's saying, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain had an evil heart. 
the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 are now really clearly distinguished here in chapter 4 between Cain and Abel. But at this point of the story, it appears like the, the seed of the serpent has crushed the seed of the woman, right? And evil has triumphed over good because Cain killed Abel. And the next few verses, they don't really offer much hope to the contrary. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. Irad was born to Enoch. Irad fathered Mahuyael. Mahuyael fathered Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Ada and the other named Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jubal, and he was the father of all who play the lyre and the flute. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. You hear the arrogance in there? For I killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech, it will be 77 times. The list of Cain's descendants leads us to this man, Lamech, who gives us a glint at just how far Cain's descendants have descended into serpent-like sin. Lamech was a very prideful and violent Man, He took two wives for himself, which is the first case of polygamy in Scripture. And he also took vengeance into his own hands when he unjustly retaliated against a man who wounded him. The man struck Lamech. Lamech killed the man. And he's proud of it. He justified his actions by pointing to God's promise of vengeance against anyone who killed Cain. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it should be 77 times. He's taking God's place here. Contrast that to the way Jesus answers Peter's question in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? What does Jesus say? I tell you, not as many as seven, but 77 times. 77 times. Lamech has no category for forgiveness or mercy only self-glorifying vengeance. The seed of the serpent has only grown more murderous and more self-absorbed with each generation, and Lamech reveals the depth of sin's corruption. But in this final verse in chapter 4, these, these final couple verses, we finally see this glimpse of hope here, right? Even though Abel is dead, the promise of a serpent crusher from the seed of the woman remains. Look at verse 25 and 26. Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. The name Seth means appointed or substitute. And Eve's words in verse 25 are reflective of her hope that God will keep his promise to give her a serpent crusher even though the offspring of the serpent, a.k.a. Cain, has killed the offspring of the woman, a.k.a. Abel. And now our own hope begins to grow. As we read verse 26, Abel was murdered before he had any offspring. But it's intentional here. The author wants you to know, Seth had a son. 
right? That leads to the hope that his family line is going to continue. And what's more, we learned that at that time, that people began to call on the name of the Lord, leading us to hope that this family line is different than that of the line of Cain. Instead of being characterized by increasing sin, as Cain's family line was, it seems as though Seth's family line will be characterized by increasing righteousness. And that hope is confirmed in chapter 5 as we look at Seth's descendants. Look at chapter 5, start in verse 1. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and he called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other, other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years, and then he died. Now, unlike Cain's genealogy, Seth's family records are linked back to the creation account to show that God's original blessing for mankind will be brought to fruition through Seth's line and not through the line of Cain, to be reminded that God is the ultimate father of all humanity, and yet he's also the father of all who put their trust in him. He is the father of righteousness. Now to save a little time, the rest of chapter 5, I'm not going to read it word for word, but instead I want to point out the pattern that the author uses here and, and focus on those verses then where the pattern gets broken because that is where we see what's being emphasized and what's important, okay? So here's the pattern. We already read it in uh, the first few verses, beginning with Adam in verse 3. The pattern of the family records goes like this. Person A was X number of years old when he fathered person B. Person A lived Y number of years after he fathered person B. And he fathered other sons and daughters. So person A's life lasted X plus Y years, and then he died. I know this sounds like an algebra problem, but stick with me for a minute, okay? How fast is the train going from Pennsylvania? This is the pattern. This is the pattern we see, word for word, from Adam to Seth to Enosh to Canaan to Mahalalel. Mahalalel, that's a weird one. And Jared, but then the pattern gets broken when we get to Enoch. Look at verse 21, chapter 5. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not there because God took him. Sounds different, doesn't it? All the other accounts say person A lived a certain number of years after he fathered person B, but in verse 22, it says that Enoch walked with God for 300 years after he fathered Methuselah. And in verse 24, repeats this phrase, Enoch walked with God. And instead of saying he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, when we get to Enoch, it says that Enoch was not there because God took him. Now, that word walk in Hebrew implies this intimacy with God characterized by trust and obedience to him. In essence, this is a picture of faith right here in Genesis, okay? The author of the book of Hebrews confirms this. Hebrews 11.5 tells us about Enoch. 
It says, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now, it is hugely important that we understand that Enoch was pleasing to God before the law was ever introduced. Why is that important? Because it means Enoch earned jack squat. Nothing. He didn't earn God's favor through legalistic obedience. Instead, he trusted and he loved God and God was pleased with Enoch's faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, now without faith, it's impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is what the phrase Enoch walked with God is giving us a picture of. It's pointing to his faith. And the fact that Enoch didn't die like the others in the genealogy holds out hope for us that the curse of death can still be overturned, that, that uh, an access to the, to the tree of life can be restored. The seventh generation from Adam through the line of Cain brought us to Lamech. The seventh generation from Adam through the line of Seth brought us to Enoch. Lamech was a jerk. He was arrogant, prideful, a polygamist. He was a vengeful killer. Enoch was a man who is described as one who humbly walked with God. And he never died. And now we see more clearly the contrast between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. The author goes back then, after mentioning Enoch, to this standard genealogy pattern in verse 25 with Methuselah. And then he, re- he breaks the pattern again as he gets to another Lamech. Look at verse 28. This is a different Lamech. Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and he named him Noah saying, this one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Lamech lived 595 years after he fathered Noah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Lamech's life lasted 777 years, and then he died. There's the pattern. Noah was 500 years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Both Cain's and Seth's genealogies Record the words of a man named Lamech. This is not a mistake. The author's doing something here. Cain's Lamech loved himself and sought his own glory. Seth's Lamech trusted God's promise to provide a serpent crusher and believed his son Noah was the one whom God provided to reverse the curse. The name Noah means relief, means comfort. And verse 32 confirms that Noah will be an important figure in our story when the author breaks once again from the standard genealogy pattern. Instead of naming one of Noah's sons, like the other genealogies he uh, have done, the author gives us the names of three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in fact, Noah's genealogy won't conclude, it won't close until the end of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 29, verse 29 says, So Noah's life lasted 950 years. And then he died. Do you recognize that pattern? There's a lot of stuff going on in between now and then, right? Everyone else's genealogies were summarized in a few sentences here in chapter 5, but Noah's is going to take four chapters 
And by mentioning Shem, Ham, and Japheth here in verse 32, the author's preparing us for a couple of really important events in the narrative, right? You know what they are? The flood and God's covenant with Noah. And we'll look at those events over the next few weeks, but for today, we, we, we just need to finish with this picture of the two family lines, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's really clear now, right? Genesis 4 and 5, these aren't just genealogies that have no bearing on our lives. They actually help us see a lot clearer. And that's what we got to ask this morning. Why do these matter? Why do these matter to us today? And the answer is that because every single one of our own spiritual lineages is tied to one of these two. It's tied directly to these. Listen to how Ephesians 2 describes our spiritual lineage. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the serpent, the, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, like Lamech, like Cain. And we were by nature children under wrath. That's our spiritual lineage. We were children under wrath as the others were also. Romans 8, 7 says the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. We were hostile to God in our sin, in our flesh. Adam and Eve passed on their sin nature to all human beings, and that means that we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. It means that we all live according to our fleshly desires, and we're all hostile to God from the beginning. Because the fall in the garden happened, we are all offspring of the serpent. This is how we begin our lives. But if you go read Luke 3, there's another genealogy there that's super important. And when you go read that, you're going to recognize some of the names because we just read them here in Genesis chapter 5. And we follow Seth and his line all the way down to Jesus Christ, the serpent crusher. Luke shows us that Jesus is not only a physical descendant of Seth, but he's the son of God. That's where Luke ends it. Takes pass through Seth to Adam to God himself. He's the son of God. And the good news of the gospel reveals how this son of God, the serpent crusher, changes our spiritual lineage. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive in Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Praise God. Amen? John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, Jesus, he gave them the right to be what? children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh, but of God. Christ changes our lineage. By God's grace, through faith in Christ and only Christ, our family tree has changed. No matter what your earthly family tree looks like? If you're in Christ, you have a new family. You have a new family. 
In Christ, we're, we're no longer children under wrath. We're adopted as children of righteousness. And it's this glorious reality of the gospel that ought to change our relationship with sin. We're no longer enslaved to it. Yes, it still crouches at our door. Yes, it still desires to have us. But God has enabled us to rule over it by a lot of things. By the power of his spirit who now lives in us. And by the way, that spirit, according to Romans 8, testifies together with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And co-heirs with Christ. And our heavenly father, we get to call him that. Our Heavenly Father has given us His Word. We sang about it this morning as a firm foundation that reminds us that our hostility is no longer against Him, but against our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking out anybody he can devour, crouching at the door. And God has given us spiritual brothers and sisters in the church who can help us stand firm against the serpent's schemes, recognizing things that we can't see ourselves because sin is blinding. And we're blind to our own blindness. And these, these brothers and sisters in the Lord, they can help us resist uh, temptation and, and pursue, as, as 2 Timothy 2.22 says, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. If you grabbed a handout, I just want to encourage you to take a look at that this week. It's like two sides of the same coin here, okay? This first side is our identity in Christ. If we're going to do battle against sin, we need to know who we are. It won't work otherwise. We need to be reminded that our spiritual lineage has been changed because of Jesus. So these are reminders. This is who I am in Christ now. On the backside, sometimes we just need practical help on how to recognize sin and its crouching tactics, right? And how to put it to death because we are, as Paul says in Romans 8, more than conquerors through him who loved us, right? We fight sin from Victory in Christ, we don't fight it to earn what we've already been given, but we do need to fight it until he returns or calls us home. And so I want to encourage you to look through those prayerfully, memorize those verses there if you need to. Ask someone to help you. When we understand that everything is either living in or everyone, excuse me, is either living in sin as the seed of the serpent or living by grace as a child of God. It helps us prioritize our lives around the gospel, right? There's a lot of things that are crouching at the door right now trying to drag us away from our mission, from our identity. But like last week, we don't look at the world. We don't look at people in a worldly way anymore. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. If you're not in Christ, you can be a new creation through him. We need to prioritize our lives around this good news of the gospel. Instead of seeking vengeance against those who hurt us, and it, sometimes we just want it, right? Can we just be honest? Man, I can't believe that person did that to me. And we just kind of watch them, hoping maybe they'll trip on the sidewalk or something and we can get just like that much pleasure. Is that just me? Instead of seeking vengeance against those who hurt us, we can recognize their need for Christ and remember that the Father, the one that we get to call Father, has enabled us to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Colossians 1, right? Right? 
by rescuing us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, which means He loves us. We can joyfully rest in the grace that we've been given and seek to be instruments then of that grace to others. We ought to long for our enemies to become our brothers and sisters. If that fills your heart, then you know that the Spirit is at work in you, that the Word of God is at work in you, that Christ is transforming you. Hebrews 12, 24 says that Christ's blood says better things than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground for vengeance, for justice, right? Christ's blood cries out to God from the cross for mercy. That's why it's better, because mercy triumphs judgment. We should walk with the Lord in humility and joy, knowing that Christ has brought us relief from the curse and believing that he'll release others from the curse too. As those who've received mercy through Christ's blood, we should want mercy and only mercy for others. Because our inheritance is literally a matter of life and death. It's vital for us to understand our spiritual lineage. In Christ, we've been given a new family. We have a new spiritual lineage. We've been adopted into a new family. So let's be people then who pass on the gospel of hope and life and freedom from the curse to the generations that follow us. Let's rest in our own adoption as children of God and rule over the sin that desires to rule over us but has no power anymore because Christ has already defeated it. Let's seek mercy instead of vengeance and let's ask God to keep growing our spiritual family by continuing to make his enemies our brothers and sisters in Christ, all for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Every part of it helps us understand all the the blessings that we've been given in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavens, your word tells us. None of us are deserving of it and yet you freely give it. Lord, we ask for strength to continue to, uh, to grow in Christ-likeness, to believe, to walk with the Lord, to seek mercy and have compassion on those we would really just rather prefer that they get what we think they deserve. Remind us that we in Christ have not gotten what we deserve. Let us be people who live in grace and who are instruments of grace for Christ's name. We pray this in his name. Amen.